Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. English Revolution doesn't always get the credit it deserves. People tend to think of France first, or maybe Russia, and granted, those ones arguably have a wider historical impact. After all, we still have a British monarchy, or precisely, we have a British monarchy again, and they don't tend to encourage talk of the revolution that saw a king killed. But despite the eventual restoration, the revolution did see the birth of ideas that would be important a century later, when unrest began to take hold in the 13 colonies or the streets of Paris. Ideas like, how absolute is power? And, do we need a king? But revolutions don't begin lightly, so what caused this one? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Seraph Downey. Hi there. Hello. Um... I'm afraid I have some really bad news. I don't know how to break this to you. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II has um, uh, perished, passed away. I'm not sure what the proper nomenclature is for a royal, but uh, yeah, she she done. <laughs> this is a rough way to find that out. <laughs> we have we have a king now instead of a queen. It's been a long time. There's a lot of a lot of people who have gone their whole lives under the British Good monarchy Chuck. without. Without a king, with a queen, it's a big adjustment. So yeah, it's uh, it's Charles the Third now, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Actually, not a joke this time, but the name Charles does not have a great history for the British monarchy. No, I wasn't aware. We are on Charles the Third. Um, between Charles the First and Charles the Second, we are at uh, a fifty percent chance of having the British monarchy abolished under a King Charles. <laughs> Oh, nice. So, I mean, oh, no, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, this is the one's going to tip it either uh, one way or the other in terms of percentage likelihood. We're, we're at, a, at a dead heat right now, but uh, only time will tell on that one. It's it's interesting, actually. The British monarchy has been really um, superstitious about names. Um, it seems like the kind of organization that would be. And. The uh, the topic that I want to talk to you about today, the um, the English Civil War, the English Revolution, it's got a lot of different names. Yeah, because it happened under a Charles, I think it's been a long time since we, since they took a risk on calling a king Charles. So there's your fun fact to start things off. Interesting. It's it's a complex topic to the point that like this is the first two parter I've done in. Oh, quite some time. I hadn't hadn't even checked, but it is going to take us two parts to get through all of this stuff. And it's it's strange because it's one of those parts of 
English history or British history, depending on how you want to name it, that I don't think gets a lot of attention. But it's not because it's not interesting. The more I dig into it, the more I'm like, why are we not talking about this constantly? I've really enjoyed looking into it. But I mean, it's it's basically we're talking about a period of instability in the mid 17th century that is going to completely reshape uh, the way the monarchy works, the way that the nations of, of Britain work all of this stuff and and not just from a, a top-down perspective but from a social perspective as well just just minor stuff nothing too big nothing too big we've talked about revolutions on this show before you and i specifically we talked about the the russian revolution which weirdly enough we did try and cram into one episode that was maybe that was maybe over ambitious of us huh I don't know. It was a good episode. I liked it. I've listened to it back a couple times. It's still good. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. That's that's good news. Um, one thing, though, that is is kind of apparent the more revolutions you look at is that you sort of need a, a few things to go wrong before a, a revolution really gets rolling, right? And one of them is just things have to be bad in certain ways for a long time, like a, a low-level hum of just badness, background badness. And then you have to have leadership that's incompetent enough not to do anything to keep it low, right? Yeah, and you'd like that one-two punch of bad situation and bad leadership. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, do I have that one-two combo for you today. So uh, we are we are going to get going on, uh, as I said, a pretty long one, a pretty complicated one, but a really interesting one. And I, I think it's well worth taking the time to, to really spend on this. So yeah, we're, we're looking at a, actually a series of distinct political and social crises that are just happening to overlap all at the same time. Um, which is even worse than just the one, two. It's it's a one, two, three, four or so, all happening at the same time in 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 England in Britain. Which, by the way, I'm going to have a hard time with going back and forth. Um, the nomenclature is uh, fuzzy, and, and more so in this period than than any other period. Um, have you been on a show yet where we talked about the um, 1707 Act of Union where it it stops being England and it starts being Great Britain and I sort of just casually toss that out there? No, but I am familiar with the current day differences between the the two terms. Right. Well, this uh, the next I don't know how many hours you and I are going to spend together is going to be the actual explanation of that very simplified sentence because <laughs> uh Sounds good yeah we don't we don't get there easily um we're really looking at uh number one financial issues which is a very common factor in revolutions number two the reformation right we've got uh, a fracturing of christianity in europe which is uh really disruptive everywhere in europe but it has a particular character in uh in england Number three, this idea of um, de facto unification without a de jure framework. De facto meaning like how things are and de jure meaning how things should be legally. Um, mm -hmm. Things are most stable when those two things line up and they often don't line up. And uh, finally, really just an inflexible leader who is just simply not up to the moment in history. Uh, I, I, there's no point burying this lead. I have very little, uh, respect or admiration for, uh, Charles the first. He was a, he was a poor monarch, but we can get into as many, many failings, uh, after we set the, the groundwork a little bit. Yeah. Sounds good. Let's spend a long time talking about religion in the 17th century. 
Oh boy, let's do. Um, I, and I mean, I'm I'm a little flippant on that, but like, it is it is so important to every single step of this revolution that that we really need to kind of orient ourselves in the moment, right? 17th century, we're really like a solid century and a bit into. Uh, the new religious order of, of Europe after the Reformation, right? So the usual story, kind of the generalized story of the Reformation goes, you know, uh, Luther posts his 95 theses in 1517 saying, hey, what if we maybe stop doing some of the worst stuff that the church does? A bunch of people said no. There's a bunch of wars about it. The Lutheran church and the Catholic church split apart. Uh, some more wars, and there's this big piece in 1555 called the Peace of Augsburg. And it's really, really tentative. No one really expects it to last, but it kind of categorizes which states are Lutheran and which states are Catholic according to the faith of the ruler, right? And this really only lasts as long as there's about as many Catholic rulers as there are Protestant rulers, right? Mm. Uh, war picks up again in 1618 with the Thirty Years' War. Uh, I have an entire episode about the Thirty Years' War. It's it's quite complicated. And yes, the Thirty Years' War is absolutely about sort of political machinations. And, and there's a conflict between the Habsburgs and the Bourbons that's happening in the background of all of this. And it's not solely religious, but it is really the last time that religion is used as a primary motivator for warfare in Europe. And I'm being very careful about what I'm saying there. Um, yes, of course, it's been a, a factor in other conflicts, but like that's the first, that's the last time that we really said, I'm going to war with that nation because their faith is different than mine. Everything else has been sort of, you have to put together a bit of a pretense, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's subtext now instead of actual text. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, so, a lot of what, uh, you know, a lot of the, the problem that, that came out of um, the, that gap between Augsburg and the Thirty Years' War was, you know, the growth and number of Protestant states, uh, the growth of non-Lutheran denominations, especially uh, Calvinism, which doesn't have a place in that binary piece of, of Augsburg, right? And, mm. um, you know, we end up with the Peace of Westphalia, which is something I've talked about many, many times on this show, because it, uh, it, it's, it's really fundamental to the current political order of, of Europe, um, or rather not the, the current order, but the order between 1648 and uh, essentially the Napoleonic Wars. So you end up with a little bit more religious toleration, um, a bunch of changes in the way that the nation state exists in, uh, in Europe. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of leaves us with this, this new world order of, of self-determination for nations. Right. Sure. So that's the, that's the, that's the generalized version of the reformation. England kind of does their own thing here. They were initially inclined to remain Catholic actually um henry the eighth was a was a very um pious uh catholic he was he was practicing um i mean he was hearing mass up to five times a day when it wasn't uh hunting season that's a lot it's it's a lot it really really is um you know he uh he wrote i mean wrote with i'm sure a lot of help from somebody that was um, much more uh, learned than he was, uh, a missive called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments in 1521, which was basic, basically a book uh, denouncing some of the main criticisms of Lutheranism. 
And because of that book, he was granted this title defender of the faith from the Pope at the time. Like he was, he was very, very Catholic and you know, that's on a religious side from a, from a political side. Um, England was relatively centralized, um, and had a good relationship with the Pope. There's absolutely like a, um, religious side to Protestantism. There's also a political side. Uh, there is, it is an, uh, it's an opportunity to break political ties with certain powers. It's a, it's an opportunity to find some independence from the church, things like that. It's not always about whether or not you agree or disagree with a certain theologian. Sure. Speaking of name, uh, superstitions in the, uh, in the English monarchy, Henry VIII wasn't actually originally intended to be king. He was he was the second son of Henry VII. Uh, he had an older brother uh, named Arthur. It would have been great if his name was Charles. <laughs> no, not Charles. Uh, no, it was <laughs> Arthur. We were we were on track to have a King Arthur, which was kind of a big deal. And like yeah, some people saw, a bit loaded. Yeah, some people saw as pretentious, and some people saw as like. A little hubristic, I suppose. Like, what do you, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yep. What do you do? don't do that. Um, and Arthur died at the age of fifteen of a mysterious illness. Um, uh huh. That's sure he did. <laughs> that's not the. Oh no, he was definitely sick. He was definitely sick. No, this isn't like a mysterious illness. Like we, you know, the best doctors in the world didn't. It's the it's the mysterious illness of like, well, it's the sixteenth century, and he got sick, and then he died, and we don't really know anything about medicine, so that's that. Sure, sure. Uh huh. Um, there was a problem though when when he when he died, which was uh, that Arthur had been married for about four or five months to Catherine of Aragon, who was a Spanish princess. Marriages in this world, especially among the nobility, among the monarchy, are there for alliance building, right? Yeah, helps keep the peace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh. I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with English uh, history, but Spain tended to be uh, an enemy pretty frequently. Well, they had a competing navy, right? They did, yes. Yeah, they were, we're going to get into the whole um, Spanish Armada thing under, under Queen Elizabeth. Um, Remind me, what, what, were the, what were the big countries that made it over to the Americas? Spain, uh, the Netherlands, like the Dutch um were were kind of the two biggest ones uh portugal to some to to some extent but they stayed more uh to the east uh for the most part they really only had colonies in you know brazil uh and then france after that and and finally england uh much later yeah so big rivalry Mm -hmm. too many people playing in the same sandbox Oh, definitely. And I mean, you know, at the at this point in time under Henry VIII, there's no question about which one is more powerful. Spain has them absolutely beat every single time. Um, so peace with Spain would be important for, you know, British prosperity. Mm-hmm. But then Arthur dies. And it's kind of like, well, what do we do about this? Henry VII uh, considered marrying her himself. He was a, a, widower, a widower at this point, uh, tried finding another family member to marry her off to kind of thing. But eventually they just kind of settled on, well, why don't we just have her marry uh, Henry VIII? Uh, then she's still marrying a, a, an English king. It's basically the same sort of thing, right? Like it's, it's, it's kind of the, the neatest resolution for everybody. 
it's so clinical like i get it that's just how it was at the time but like oh yeah oh yeah no it's 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 kind of gross but like these people like that's the thing you have to understand that when we're like we're using the same word marriage but this is not the same thing as as we think of right um you know we're gonna expect some some heirs to be produced and other than that we're going to absolutely expect some um uh, concubines or however we want to whatever the whatever the polite euphemism is uh for people they actually care about that's just how it worked at this level in this in this time period right Mm-hmm. This involved some some papal intervention. The Pope had to get involved and basically grant Catherine uh, an annulment to her previous marriage to Arthur because there's some weird kind of competing uh, prohibitions in the Bible in terms of whether or not it's okay to ma- marry your deceased brother's wife. Um, in fact, there's one place where it says you're obligated to and there's another place where it says you absolutely must not which is is somehow or sometimes how these these laws go right um but thanks for clearing that up (laughs) it's really it's really enlightened things um but yeah this this involved them going to the pope and basically catherine testified that because they were only married for about five months and because arthur was sick that entire time uh they had never consummated the marriage and they were granted a, a general annulment so as far as the church was concerned uh she had never been married how old was she she would have been, um, oh, she would have been about 20. No, no, no. Even, even less than that. Somewhere around 17 at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they, they waited until, um, uh, Arthur was 15 and she was just slightly older, uh, than he was. Um, so yeah, she would have been, she would have been in her, her late teens at that point. Um, but yeah, they, they really wanted the two of them, uh, Arthur and Catherine married as soon as possible. So yeah, the, the moment he, t- he turned 15, uh, they got married a couple of months later, he was gone. So Henry the eighth marries Catherine. How old was Henry at this point? Younger. He was about five years younger than, than Catherine. So <laughs> yeah, well, no, they, they waited again uh, until he was an appropriate, sure, sure. an appropriate age. I say with a, a lot of. <laughs> if, if you could see if you could it, I, i'm sure you can hear the asterisks in my voice right i'm trying yeah, very right. hard very hard to communicate how weird that is but there are uh i guess the fate of several nations on the line i don't know man it's it's just not it's not good mm. it's not great but they're married early on in the marriage there's uh one baby who dies a couple of weeks after he's born um very very early there's a surviving daughter, uh, Mary. And then after that, we're going to see four more stillbirths. Uh, this is Yikes. a, this is a difficult time to, to, uh, give birth in. Um, it's, it's, it's really dangerous and infant mortality is very, very high. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it, it's not, it's not as though, this is necessarily the most rare in this era, but it's it's still high, even even given the parameters of the era, right? Sure. To only have one out of six uh, children survive. And there's also the additional um, pressure, the political pressure to not just have children, but like produce heirs, right? There's this there's this expectation there. And it's really, really difficult on their marriage, which was already not exactly under uh, ideal circumstances. Uh, and so, 
you know, by the time we get to 1518, they've been married for nine years. Um, Catherine is, is no longer, uh, able to have children. Um, uh, you know, and, and when we get to 1527, so they've been married for 18 years at this point with only one single surviving daughter, Henry VIII finally requests an annulment. There's a couple of factors that are involved here. One is that like we, Catherine has reached an age, like she's in her forties now that like she wouldn't be able to have children. Like this isn't a, Oh, it still might happen thing. Um, yeah, it's according to the, the biological clock has run out of time. Yeah. According to the, to the medical understanding of things like this is no longer a possibility. So it's not, you know, and it, so there's that there's the fact that, you know, his father, Henry the seventh, uh, had become King through essentially the war of the roses, which was a massively disruptive event in, in English history where, you know, you have the, the two, uh, families, the, the Yorks and the Lancasters are, are battling to see who gets the, the crown. And, and, uh, you know, Henry is the culmination of that, but like, a lot of people tied in those wars and it was all over succession. Succession mm-hmm. is, is paramount in these, uh, these interactions. Right. And Henry knows that he's internalized that in, in, in a very meaningful way. Like he knows what happens when there's no direct heir, And so he sees it again as, as a, as a, almost a national security issue that he have someone in place to take, uh, to take the crown. There's also the fact that he saw his own marriage as cursed. There was those competing Bible verses that we talked about. Yes. He began to suspect after all of these stillbirths that it was actually maybe not as okay as everyone said it was when they got married, that Mm -hmm. maybe uh, he had done something against God and that he was being punished for that. So, he has he has all of these things stacking up that are just like i got a dip like this is not working i got to go and so he oh and also i i should not over uh look the fact that he had been uh interested in one of catherine's uh handmaidens for about 2 years at this point i, I don't i don't want to minimize the other con- concerns they were real but i i don't think being uh, you know, having his eye on Anne Boleyn for <laughs> since 1525 is is a non-factor either. Right. So he wrote a letter to the Pope, uh, or rather sent a messenger to the Pope, uh, and the Pope said no. This is a this is a different Pope than when he got married. This is Pope Clement VII, and you know it's it's a little bit complicated. First of all, uh, we can't annul this marriage saying that it had never been consummated. There were several, you know, there's, there's one surviving children and several others. There's also uh, the fact that generally popes don't go against previous decisions, uh, Mm. by other popes. It's just kind of not done. It's, it's, uh, there's no like rule against it necessarily, but like it is destabilizing. Right. And you can get into a situation where you're constantly overturning previous Pope stuff and it, it, it really can harm sort of continuity. And then finally, uh, there's the fact that he was currently, the Pope was currently a prisoner of Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman empire, who through a series of circumstances happened to be Catherine's nephew. Oh, so he's in jail, his captor, and, and he's being act, asked to annul the marriage of his captor's aunt. 
he kind of felt like maybe that might not go great for him. Yeah. So there's also the fact that Catherine was opposed to it. She wanted to remain married to to Henry. Uh, they had also offered her an opportunity to basically check herself into a nunnery. Like uh, that, that, that was one way out of marriages like this uh, sure. in, in the era. Take vows and it dissolves the marriage. Um, but she refused to do that as well. So Clement VII said no. He, he, just, he just couldn't make it work. Um, and... You know, it's it's not that he was being petty. It was that there were there were a lot of factors against it. Henry, you know, generally seemed like a nice guy. He was not a smart guy. He liked hunting. He was very athletic when he was young. Basically, whatever his advisors told him to do, he tended to do it. And over the past decade or so, um, more and more of his advisors had spent time uh, in Germany learning from these scholars who were part of this new Reformation movement. And some of them are going, well, you know, my lord, there's a way out of this. Uh, I know a lot of princes over in the Holy Roman Empire who have taken it. What about just not listening to the Pope anymore? So between 1529 and 1536, uh, they convened a parliament called the Reformation Parliament in which basically Henry told everybody figure this marriage issue out for me. And then a whole bunch of different minority Lutherans, uh, and other various reformation, uh, factions within parliament tried to duke it out for like what exactly the church might look like in England. But the thing is Henry still was like at heart Catholic and really his ideal version of this was that he could still go to a Catholic mass, practice in Latin, change nothing about any of the rites, just also get divorced. That's really all he wanted. Interesting. I'm so like I'm passingly familiar with this story, right? Like everyone's heard about how the Anglican Church came about in mm -hmm. some form or another, but I didn't know it was quite this fraught. Oh yeah. Yeah. It becomes very difficult that those, those several years of, of working it out and we're not even close to done either. So he's got a couple of uh, advisors, the, the main ones being two guys named Thomas Moore and Thomas Cromwell. And Cromwell's kind of going to be the main one pushing for some of this stuff are using this crisis to start kind of extricating the church from the concept of English sovereignty, right? Let's take the church out of every aspect of that, out of every aspect of that. We're not going to be having the church or having the king crowned by a bishop of, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic church anymore. We'll have our own bishops. Let's, you know, we're not going to have monasteries anymore. We're going to seize that land. And they start a process known as the dissolution of the monasteries. The church owned somewhere between 20 and 35% of the land in England at this point in time. This is kind of typical across uh, Europe. You would see similar things uh, in you know, the French Revolution later, right? And they sort of saw this as an opportunity for number one, a one-time cash infusion by just taking all of this stuff under uh, ownership of the, uh, the crown. And number two, an opportunity to sort of centralized power in England. Their, their plan was this. They take all the church lands, right? And then they sell it off to various gentry, uh, nobility, in exchange for titles. But there's also like an implicit, we've done a favor for you. Now you have to be loyal to us. Quid pro quo happening there. 
Yeah. And it makes it a lot easier to take these these lords from different parts of uh, England and kind of just bring them to heal a little bit. Everything was still a little bit... Mm, like it's not like they were on the verge of of crisis or anything like that but they had just been through a massive civil war under henry's father and to have a way to just tighten that up a little bit big benefit i'm sure this land grab is going to go unopposed right it actually goes relatively smoothly at least in england um that that tends to go fine the other thing that buying a really expensive title does is means that you lose a lot of your money and so you have a lot less means to say i don't know uh raise an opposing army mm, that makes sense it's it's a, it's an excellent tactic it's get, it's gonna get noticed and used other places so yeah within within england this isn't a big deal uh within ireland it doesn't go as well We'll get a little bit more to Ireland under the sort of the more political stuff. But yeah, the, the people in Ireland are less interested in this whole consolidation thing. So the main goals of Moore and Cromwell were basically to take this crisis, the king wants a divorce, and use it to basically uh, forward, number one, forward their Lutheran ends. They were both devout Lutherans. And two, make it as hard to undo as possible. So that's where that's where selling it to the gentry is also kind of genius. If the crown had just set, seized those lands and then, um, I don't know, uh, uh, somebody comes along, seizes the monarchy, installs a Catholic king, then the king could very easily just give those lands back to the, to the church, right? Right. But now you've got people with a claim to the land who are going to want to defend that themselves as well. Which is very hard to undo, yeah. It's smart, it's devious, but it makes a lot of sense. Cromwell started pushing harder and harder on reforms, and he kind of went from king's favorite to uh, eventually executed <laughs> in Oops. a few years. Uh, the, the exact the exact reasoning is a little bit hard to pin down because it's that era and there's a lot of competing uh interests that are at play there so like what was like the one thing that was the final straw it's it's not entirely clear but it does seem like he was pushing the uh move away from catholic rights a little bit too hard for henry's tastes uh, because he was a true lutheran he wanted to completely reform the church and that just wasn't what henry was interested in if this wasn't messy enough now we get into a very messy a very messy era for religion in britain or England, I suppose. Again, nomenclature. Uh, 1547, Henry finally dies. He did have a, a son by this point, uh, Edward VI. Okay. He was very young, uh, nine years old. And he was not, he was just never a healthy kid. Like, he was constantly sick. And uh, his life is not going to be terribly long. He he, uh, he only lives to uh, 15 um, but I'm sure this is going to make all that succession stuff real easy to say, right? <laughs> well, this is, this is the fundamental problem with the, with the English revolution in the 17th century, right? It, it's basically all Henry VIII's fault, not always intentionally, but like all of it comes back to Henry VIII, which is why we're starting so far forward. There's, there's the religion stuff and there's the succession stuff built like, like tangled up into one another. Mm -hmm. So Edward VI, this king. Remember what I said about the advisors basically being able to do whatever they wanted? 
yeah how's that going for them now <laughs> well actually pretty well because when you're nine you don't actually rule um you get a regency council that does all the ruling in your name and you basically make no major decisions so that's going to be composed of a lot of people who are important under henry the eighth which is a lot of those people who are pushing for lutheranism and one of the things that they had managed to get in place even before henry's death was you know saying listen your son's going to be king we should get him the best uh tutors uh that exist in like in the world like we should bring in world-class uh teachers to show him how to rule and it, why not these ones from Germany who happen to be on the cutting edge of Lutheranism? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? And so Edward VI was strongly uh, Protestant. It's it's a it's a field of thought called uh, that they called Protestant humanism. You're looking at almost Enlightenment ideals before the Enlightenment takes place. Like it's going to be producing a lot of thinkers that are going to influence the Enlightenment a century later. So it is quite academic. But the, the reality of it is once Henry is gone, you have a king who personally believes in the Reformation, has advisors who believe in the Reformation, and all of them are going, why don't we make these changes? You're the head of the church. You can do what you want, right? So they put in place heavy penalties for Catholics in England, for example. Uh, they uh, create what's known as the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, which some version of this continues to be used in Anglican rites to this day. It's been updated and modified many, many, many times, but it's the first uh, attempt at actually codifying the differences between Anglicanism and Catholicism. Sure. And, you know... They publish it. Everyone gets very upset. Like there's nearly a rebellion on, on the first publication because everybody at this point in time has a very different understanding of what exactly does Anglicanism mean. It's not it's not super clear. What happens to like the priests and the bishops in this time? Do well, they convert? Do they find themselves uh, in danger? The the short answer is case by case. Um, so it, it really depends. There's a lot of priests who go, well, um, this Anglicanism sounds a lot like what I've been doing my entire life. I just don't report to the Pope who I never spoke to anyways. So sure. like, what's the difference? I'm going to keep doing this, right? There's some of them who, uh, make a stink on, on principle, on, on theological, uh, grounds who are more than likely going to see criminal prosecution, but the things that are like the things that are being confiscated, right? Like the things that are taken away, it's not like churches are being knocked down and uh, sold off, like the, the land sold off. Monasteries are uh, because they, they're not interested in continuing like a monastic tradition necessarily. But like the churches, they're basically changing the signs. And yeah. even even then, probably not like Anglicans are still actually kind of chill with, you know, saints and things like that actually and you know uh, good with the stained glass good with the you know like all of that stuff is still pretty pretty standard so it's not until the book of common prayer comes out where they're listing like much stronger protestant tenets of faith that some of these priests are like oh oh this is what this is all about okay and that's the sort of thing where your average person isn't going to necessarily care about um, 
you know, the finer points of, of theory of transubstantiation, but like they have had the same parish priests since they were a kid and they will listen to what they say. Yeah. And so that's where you get people really upset where it's like, what do you mean I'm, they're changing the mass that I've heard my entire life? What do you mean they want to switch from Latin to English, for example? What do you mean they're they're doing all of this stuff? So it's, it's very piecemeal. Some places are happy to go along with the changes. Some places are really upset about it. But like this, this pseudo rebellion that comes out. Uh, out of the Book of Common Prayer, once that's quashed, it's kind of like, okay, well, our options here are to either go along with Anglicanism, whatever that means, because it's still being defined at this point in time, or continue to try and practice like truly pure Roman Catholic or Catholicism, essentially in secret, right? And so mm. you'll have pre, uh, you'll have parishes that continue to practice the the Latin rites and have you know the the Book of Common Prayer sitting there ready to go you know in a break glass in case of emergency sort of situation if uh, somebody comes around from the state but like who's checking on all of these places right sure so it's 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 really really it, it depends on how many waves you're making I guess is the short answer here. There's another book of common prayer, 1552, to try and resolve some of the issues uh, with with the first one. But like there's always compromises is the issue. There's people who are like, this is too far away from Catholicism. I'm not happy. And then there's a minority Protestant uh, sect that is growing, but is still a minority at this point in time. That's saying you're not taking it far enough. This is still too Catholic. We've got to purge that stuff from the Anglican church. And I think it all really results from that first, you know, reformation parliament where it's, it's not a single guiding hand saying like, this is what we're going to do. It's not like the same as the establishment of, of Lutheranism or even some of the other, uh, smaller groups, you know, Calvinism or whatever that have a, a strong, like, this is, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going for. It's this series of compromises because the the initial uh, inception of it is so utilitarian, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much philosophical as it is like, we need to not have a succession problem. Yeah, that's exactly it. So 1553, Edward dies of an illness and it leaves his sister Mary as queen. This is the the Mary who was daughter of Catherine of Aragon, fairly early in uh, in uh, Henry's life, who was raised Catholic and who continued to practice Catholicism. How did things go for Catherine after she was divorced? Uh, she lived out a few years and and died a, a couple of years later. Um, she was like she was fine, like she was given a, a house to live in and things like that, but. Like it was, yeah, she only lived another, I want to say another five years or something like that. Um, like unrelated. It wasn't like she was, she was, she wasn't executed. I believe she was ill with something or other. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. Um, but I, I mean, again, any of this, I, that's the thing, right? If, if Henry had just been five years more patient, then this whole thing would have been resolved and we wouldn't have needed, uh, all of this upset about Anglicanism. And anyway, like you don't know that stuff at the time, but it's, it's, yeah, things could have gone very, very differently there. Anyway, Mary is Catholic, as I mentioned, and she really saw all of the stuff that her little brother Edward got up to as being like, whoa, 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 like slow it down, right? And I had the impression that maybe if 
Anglicanism had existed as it was under Henry, she might have kind of let it stand a little bit, maybe made some gentle overtures to the church as reconciliation. But because Edward had gone so far on, you know, anti-Catholic laws and uh, revision of um, ceremony and things like that, she basically went the entire opposite way. So she started with preaching what she called religious tolerance, which was code for she's not going to enforce any anti-Catholic laws. But because an act of parliament was required to reinstate Catholicism, because remember, it was abolished by a, by an act of parliament, um, she couldn't exactly like unilaterally bring it back in. What she did instead was reach out to the church who sent a cardinal in the next year, 1554, a cardinal named Reginald Pohl, who was there to see, um, to oversee, you know, um, a reunion, I suppose. Uh, he, he, you know, spoke to parliament, uh, reassured people that they wouldn't be coming back for the land that had been taken from the church, but you know, it forgave the dissolution, all of that. But in return, all he wanted was some small powers to uh, prosecute an aggressive counter-reformation throughout all of England. Oh, that's it? That's, that's all, all he wanted? That's it. just one little thing. Um, and yeah, this, this quickly turns into like reinstating medieval anti-heresy laws and like it gets really aggressive really quick um, to the point that the Catholic Church actually recalls him relatively soon being like, yo, you gotta, you gotta rein it in there a little pump, bit. Pump the brakes there, bud. <laughs> Mary is only queen for five years. She dies in 1558. And she had no heirs, which means that now the crown goes to her sister, Elizabeth, who is Protestant. Oh, good. She really, really tried to stabilize the whole situation. She made it very clear within a year of taking the crown that, like, we are Anglican. We are a Protestant nation. But... Like we're gonna we're gonna just slow things down on the whole like prosecution of Catholicism thing. So you know, another book of common prayer is written. It retains a lot of the um it, it's essentially a balance between like Catholic aesthetics and Protestant theology, if that makes mm. sense. So like sure. the, the actual underpinnings of it are very Protestant, but like we're gonna keep the stained glass, we're gonna keep the bishops, we're going to keep the the centralized hierarchy of the church with the uh monarch in the place where the the Pope would have been. But like we're still gonna have that parish structure. Uh and we are going to have like a centralized decision on uh matters of faith, on theology, right? So there's going to be a centralized decision. We believe X and that is going to be what is preached and what is taught at every single parish at every single level throughout the realm. Catholics were unhappy with this. Protestants also unhappy, but like less so. They saw it as sort of a situation that like they could ride out and hopefully we can kind of convince some some small changes over time. But like the things that mattered the most of them were the theology part, right? Yeah. Uh, there were some, you know, a bunch of assassination plots and rebellion plots made by Catholic uh, Englishmen. So yeah, that, what year is it now? No, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we're, we're talking <laughs> we're getting about, there, though, right? <laughs> we are. We are getting there. Um, we, we are talking like the 1560s here. OK. 
still got like 45 years to go. Yeah. Um, but like these do not help the Catholic cause in England. Um, they, 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 things, things start sliding back towards like, look, we're going to have to criminalize Catholicism. This is, this is clearly like a, yeah, y'all well, are acting like criminals here. So it seems like it's a dangerous ideology. It's, it's generating nothing but, uh, but treason. The, the one the one saving grace i think of the elizabethan era on religion in england is it was very long and it was very stable right like she's she's queen for a very long time it's it's uh oh it's 45 years i think it, it ends up being oh, yeah 15, that's 15, quite a while considering the last couple 1558 to 1603 right yeah um so by the time you get to the 1580s or so most citizens in England have settled into a more or less comfortable relationship with Anglicanism. And Anglicanism seems to actually mean something distinct, like it has core tenets. It's actually kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's had some fairly uh, Calvinist aspects that have crept into the theology over the years. Um, but like everybody, again, understands it, like the relationship between those catholic aesthetics and protestant uh theology it seems to just work well enough for most people in england there are some dissenting groups to that there's kind of basically two main types one is what's known as separatist movements and that's meant uh, what's meant by that are people who don't feel like they can engage with anglicanism as it exists anymore and this is groups that will be very niche for a long time they'd go on to be like for example the quakers uh would be one example of a separatist movement where they're sort of like their theology is just incompatible with a state-led religion um tends to be a little bit more uh um charismatic is what you would call it in in religious terms so there's a lot about uh direct revelation or divine revelation where people are are feeling uh, a direct um Communic communicative uh, relationship with God is is this uh, more of a Protestant movement? Uh, it's it's largely Calvinist in nature, so yeah, Protestant. Um, there's very few Catholics that are open are practicing openly by by later Elizabethan era. There are some, but uh, you know they're quiet about it. They keep it yeah. under their hats. It's it's criminal. So the separatists are technically criminal as well, but like they're kind of more. Um, Number one, they're very small. And number two, they're kind of seen as somewhat harmless and they're not really prosecuted directly very often. Not until they start doing something weird, which they eventually will. Don't worry, we'll get to that. But um, for the most part, yeah, what do they as, get up to? Hmm. Oh, it, it, it'll be it'll be a while. But yeah, no, those are like, you know, the 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 oh, the the Plymouth Rock Pilgrims, right? Like those are descended from this separatist movement where yep. it's just people who are like we can't stay we've got to go somewhere else then the other much larger group of of dissenters i suppose are largely and again these these categories they're very very like they're not definitive they're very very loose but generally the ones who are willing to stay are but but kind of reform anglicanism are going to be referred to as puritans Ah, uh, yes. I think a lot of people confuse Puritanism with the separatist movements. Like there's this idea that, you know, Quakers would be considered Puritans. There's a big difference. The The Puritan movement stems out of that, um, that Protestant humanist tradition. It's like, it's actually very academic and it's, um, 
it's fundamentalist, but not in the way that we would understand the word today, because usually today fundamentalism points to a more charismatic sect, right? Like you would, you would look at the, um, Pentecostal, uh, traditions in the, in the U S right. Uh, evangelicals. Sure. These, uh, the, the Puritans are, uh, fundamentalist in a humanist sense, which is what they're saying is whatever is in the Bible goes and they don't allow for like personal revelation as part of that so they do get a reputation for like being no fun (laughs) they do like they that's that's the that's the stereotype at the time but it's it's not because they're like necessarily like super uptight people in their day-to-day lives it's that they the way they practice religion has no space for anything that's not directly written in the bible so for example puritans are going to try and abolish christmas like celebrating christmas at all and that's because they see the celebration of christmas as being number one uh it's become fairly secular and number two uh they see it as like there's nothing about christmas in the bible and number three, they see the connection to pagan holidays that seem to have been appropriated and incorporated into Christmas celebrations. Sure. So it's not necessarily like the the celebration itself that's a problem. It's that like the, the celebration's like wrong in that it's incorrect, not that it's like inherently bad. It's it's a weird distinction to make, but it'll make more sense as we go along. It's an important Inac- one to understand. Inaccurate celebration. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and and potentially pagan as well. That's that's more the sticking point, I think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they'll they'll try and abolish Christmas. They they won't um, participate in some of the more, you know, ecstatic aspects of celebrating in church. Um, but they essentially see the path forward to this as reforming the Anglican Church itself. They tend to be generally speaking um wealthier members of society with more influence and they're just hoping that they can kind of steer things in the right direction we're very much in like a in a spot when um when elizabeth dies uh, religiously speaking that is is stable but it's got a few factions within it that are looking to potentially make some some changes uh things are a little bit different in other parts of the uh, of what now would be britain so for example uh in ireland they had technically converted to anglicanism under henry the eighth but very few of the local priests supported it and there wasn't a lot of direct uh control in ireland at that point in time leaving a majority of the population catholic mm-hmm. in scotland they had gone undergone an independent uh reformation uh inspired by a theologian named john knox um, it's very Calvinist in nature. This is where some of the Calvinist aspects of uh, Anglicanism come from. But this is what's going to become known as Presbyterianism. And it's the, the main the main difference there between Presbyterianism and the Anglican Church or Episcopalianism is that Presbyterianism, they're generally they're centralized, but they're governed by a council of elders. So people who are, have been around a long time and people respect and kind of elect, right? Whereas Episcopalianism means that there's a, a, a college of bishops that's appointed from the top down and it's a, it's a, it's a downward hierarchical structure. It's a small thing, but when we're talking about these religious organizations, small things can be everything sometimes. And when the Puritans are looking at 
Anglicanism, they're often looking to Presbyterianism as like a model of a way forward for Anglicanism. So they're looking north to Scotland and saying, you know, why don't we consider abolishing bishops? Bishops seem kind of Catholic. We could go with a council of elders instead, right? Like it's it's one of those like gentle pushes kind of thing for that Puritan movement. Sure. In 1603, Elizabeth I dies. Famously, uh, never married, no direct heir. Once again, we have a succession problem on our hands. I think everyone's really, really sick of succession problems at this point because it goes pretty smoothly. It's kind of decided even before Elizabeth's death that the crown is going to be given to uh, James VI of Scotland. He's by far the best choice for the situation that exists. He uh, is descended from um, Henry VIII's older sister. So there's a common ancestry through Henry VII for both Elizabeth and James. Um, it's not super close, but it will do in this situation. Yeah, there's an internal logic there. Sure. He's already a king. So, I mean, like, he knows what he's doing. It's not pulling up some random noble, which could cause further instability. He is Protestant, which is important at this point in time. Yeah. And kind of most importantly, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, is that when he's being offered the crown, he already has three young, healthy children, two of whom are boys. We should be set for a while, right? The problem with James is that the shine kind of wears off quickly, at least from a religious point of view. Because as much as he seems good at the beginning and as much as everyone has uh, sort of fatigue with the succession stuff... Look, James was baptized Catholic when he was born. He was raised Protestant. He had a truce with Presbyterians, and he had just been made head of the Anglican Church. And as much as it would be nice if that meant that like he could get along with all sides, really it just mean, meant that every side found something to be suspicious of with him. Yeah, sure. There's just there's something there for everyone to pick a bone with. Exactly. This is where we get the gunpowder plot. This is uh, something you and I talked about in, in, uh, you know, in an entire episode of its own. But essentially what happened was a bunch of Catholics were hoping because he was baptized Catholic that James was a secret Catholic this whole time and would revert a whole bunch of anti-Catholic laws. And that was not the case. They gave him about two years to relax those laws. And like thinking about it from James's point of view, of course, he didn't relax it. He had just been made head of the Anglican Church and he had seen what had happened to his three predecessors yeah he's not gonna rock the boat but as soon as the catholics saw that he wasn't going to make a move then you get the assassination plot which is foiled which again just sort of turns james against catholicism <laughs> and brings in uh even harsher laws so kind of backfires yeah i think that's more or less brought us up to speed on the religion side of things just in terms of like where we're at in the 17th century for England, because it's a lot of it's a lot of background. Right. And I want us to be able to understand when once in a while I toss out a line that like points out a religious affiliation or points out a like why that was so critical to the players involved, because it was this is a this is a such a core part of their lives. Right. That even a small thing like, you know, oh James was baptized catholic even though he's a protestant like that means he's untrustworthy like that needs to have a century's worth of weight behind it when we talk about it yeah 
as much as we're going to talk about politics, like religion is inextricable from politics in this era, right? So um, that brings us to politics. Uh, I think that's probably a really good place for us to take a pause, take a quick break, regroup a little bit. And when we come back, we can talk about the political landscape of Britain in this era. Oh, goody. Let's do. Back on HI 101 here with Seraph Downey. Hello. Hello. And we've been mainly talking about religion a good century before our actual story, which is always a sign of good things to come. There's a lot of preamble. It's fine. You know, I mean, look, there's kind of two ways to do this sort of story, which is let's start when the actual thing starts and fill in the gaps later or like let's do the groundwork up front and then like when the action starts we can come at it at a full sprint and i i tend to be of the uh the latter camp you know um i want you to know what you need to know beforehand so that uh, when you know it's it's the equivalent of someone giving a knowing glance to the camera you know what that means yeah sure weird to stick in a footnote at that port at that point you know so anyway lots of religion let's get into politics and once again, I think we can reliably point to Henry VIII as mainly the source of most of these problems. Hank, you done did a goof. Uh, let's let's start with Ireland. We're not going to stay with Ireland the whole time, but let's start there. You know me, I'm always down for a trip to Ireland. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I I remember what happens when we go here. I knew what I was <laughs> I knew what I was signing up for when I asked you to do this topic. I was. I was well aware. Um, let's do it. We're going to keep things light today. I think part two, we're going to get a little bit worse, but uh, here we go. There had been a king of all of Ireland at one point. It had been a long time since that had existed. Traditionally, Ireland was kind of split up into four or five kingdoms at various points, but they did occasionally elect like a high king of all of Ireland. I'm not sure if you know a whole lot about it, but uh, Ireland, they were Catholic, but they were so far away from Italy that they got a little weird with it for a while. Nice. It's just, it's nothing, again, it's one of those things that like when when you actually list out the, the differences, it's not, it's not huge or anything, but in the centuries coming up to the Reformation, the, the Catholic Church had really... Um, clamped down on heresy in a way that they hadn't really cared about it a whole lot through the medieval period. And when they realized that, you know, what, what Ireland was up to, which is, you know, a, a number one a focus on like asceticism. So like very sparse, uh, very stark uh, monastic living for monks and mm-hmm. also, you know, the occasional um, marriage of a priest here and there. You know, it's the kind of thing where it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal? But when you're obsessed with rooting out heresy, could signal something worse coming up. Yeah. So they got a little uptight about it. In uh, 1155, Pope Adrian IV came to King Henry II. Pope Adrian IV was actually the first English Pope ever to exist. So, of course, he's going to be the one that goes and ruins things for Ireland. Yeah, of course. Who else would it be? <laughs> uh, it's always going to be the English every single time. Um, every time. Bastards. 
in 11 <laughs> in in 1155 uh adrian the decides listen there's a real easy solution to all of this we will just buy papal bull just say ireland belongs to the english crown now mm-hmm. it's theirs it's theirs sure. mm-hmm. uh-huh and it really was it really was about bringing the the irish uh, uh church into line but i mean i'm, I'm sure it also yeah, look the, the politics of of appointing popes in this area i'm sure i'm sure some backroom stuff happened there yeah why not kill a few birds with the one stone exactly exactly so ireland had had this high king since about 854 1155 the pope claims that it's um you know illegitimate and henry ii takes his time getting ready for uh you know to act on this it's sort of just on the books for a while but in 1171 there was uh one of the one of the kings uh, the king of leinster who had asked for english support in a weird little regional conflict thing we don't need to get super deep into it the king of leinster uh died in 1171 and henry ii was already on his way over with uh armies to ostensibly support uh leinster in a in in this little conflict and he decided he would take advantage henry i mean uh decided to take advantage of the uh instability and um invade ireland essentially oops just tripped my way into an invasion oops here we go um that's how it goes right like that's anyway so nominally at least since 1171 the king of england has also been uh the title they used was lord of ireland the high king was in absentia and the uh king of england was acting kind of in his stead uh ruling over all of ireland it's kind of a weird like just call him king sort of thing but he wasn't technically king of ireland at that point any particular reason that he didn't want the king of ireland title uh i think mainly it's the issue that we were previously talking about with james right who is james the sixth of scotland and also james the first of england that whole personal uh unity thing right it's it's sort of it's sort of awkward and unstable and not a good way to do monarchy i guess i i guess the way i would i would uh compare it is like you know let's say oh i don't know you're some sort of billionaire and uh you own several uh companies maybe one uh, sells anything and everything online and maybe one of them uh, <laughs> shoots people into space. I'm just spitballing here. I'm coming up with random, random yeah, uh, I don't really uh, examples. see a modern parallel, but all right, go off. But anyway, say, say, this, <laughs> say this is a situation. It's, it's unrealistic, I know, but stick with me. Um, the fact that you happen to own both of these things doesn't mean that if one of them was sold to somebody else, the other one would be automatically included in the deal. Right. You could include it. Right. But it's not a necessity. It's not a given. They're not considered the same entity. They could be split without causing any sort of a rupture in one or the other. Gotcha. That's what personal rule is here uh, with James. Right. He is king of England and king of Scotland. But the crowns of England and Scotland are separate. 
Yeah. In fact, when James is going to die in a little bit uh, and his son Charles takes over, he's actually going to have to have two separate coronations, one in England and one in Scotland. Checks out. Uh So he's Lord of Ireland. That way he has less obligation there. That way there's less confusion over who's king of what, all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, it really is predicated on that. Let's keep the Irish Catholic as pos- uh, as much as possible sort of condition, I suppose. Um, because really, they don't have a, uh, the kings of England, I mean, don't have a claim to the crown of Ireland, except for the law of the Catholic Church, right? Mm. So when Henry VIII splits from the church in 1530 seven nine whichever year you want to use as your uh, as your goal gets a little weaker eh? gets a lot weaker it's a problem so a couple of things happen are are going to happen at the same time there number one uh there is going to be a a rebellion in ireland because there's this again they're not interested in anglicanism like it basically sounds like uh catholicism light and also if there's an opportunity to break out from English rule, like let's take it, obviously. So there's a rebellion in Irish. So there is a rebellion in <laughs> Ireland. It happens. Um, Cromwell, who we've talked about extensively, right? Thomas Cromwell, uh, Henry's uh, advisor. Yeah. Basically said, great. This is actually an opportunity for us. Number one, let's, solidify the political situation with the whole lord of ireland king of england thing that's messy that's based on basically nothing i'm a protestant i don't care about what the pope says kind of vibes happening here right so he basically says let's take this as an opportunity to solidify your personal rule over ireland and so cromwell basically takes an army over to Ireland to put down the rebellion there and uh, is successful in that. It's it's a defeat for, for Ireland. This is also like, a, it's an indication of things to come in terms of like Ireland's uh, adoption of, Catholic, of, of uh, Anglicanism, right? We talked about that a little bit. They're just not going to be interested in it at all. And part of what uh, part of what contributes to that is the sort of, um, well, not sort of, the violent nature of its imposition on Ireland. Makes sense. Not, not to mention, like, just the the overall relationship between these two nations, right? Like, going back hundreds of years. Um, so, these lords rise up. They are defeated by Cromwell. They're put down. And Henry VIII... Uh, forces a convention of Irish Parliament, which is not a very common thing, but it, it does exist, and essentially forces them to uh, change his title to King of Ireland. So now he is like officially King of Ireland, and that crown is going to uh, not only exist uh, under his his personhood, like as as an individual, but it's going to be amalgamated with the crown of england so whoever is crown or whoever is monarch of england is always going to be monarch of ireland as well from here on out that's essentially done under duress but it is going to make things a lot easier politically speaking for 
English monarchs and a lot harder for Ireland in general, which is, again, how these things generally seem to go. Yeah, that's that. That was the point. <laughs> that was it was literally the point, because now they're not depending on the pope to uh, or the pope's authority, rather, to uh, retain control of Ireland and Ireland can't use its religious affiliation to declare independence from England, which it did try in this rebellion, right? It it offered uh, it offered the title of Lord of Ireland to the Pope directly. It offered it to the Holy Roman Emperor, who was Catholic. Like it tried everybody, and it just nope, did not work out. Now the King of England has that authority based on invasion, like you know, uh, uh, defeat rather than just um, papal legislation. It's also a lot harder to split a crown than it is to split, as we just talked about, two distinct crowns that are held by the same person. Right. So that's kind of where we're at with uh, with Ireland. Things are a little uh, tender there, as, as virtually always. <laughs> yeah. Just, just recently, though. This is the first time, right? <laughs> uh Wales, there's not as much to talk about. Um, Wales really only had one, like, king of all Wales. I'm never going to get that name right. I think it's Griffith Athloellen, um, but that's probably wrong. Welsh is uh, a notoriously difficult language to pronounce, and I'm, I'm 100% positive that was not right. But anyway, he ruled from 1057 to 1063, and basically after his death... Uh, there was a little bit of like uncertainty on who would be king of all uh, Wales immediately following that. And then three years later, William the Conqueror turned up. So uh, that was about the end of that. Um, Wales is kept, you know, distinct from England, which is kind of interesting. Um, for yeah, That's always seemed odd to me. For a very long time. It's sort of a... Um, it's sort of a client kingdom, right? Like it's 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 uh it's got independent princes. It's politically useful to keep those people like the Welsh lords. Uh, they called them Marsh lords, or sorry, Marcher lords, um, to to allow them to keep their own laws, but have them politically subordinate. It's basically a way to have Wales um, loyal without having to actually go through the trouble of like invading and defeating the entire country yeah sure there's a few welsh uprisings in the 13th century england invades and annexes but like it's still somewhat distinct up until we get to want to take any guesses henry the eighth uh yeah i was just gonna say is it is it hank <laughs> it sure is um thomas cromwell advises that he's gonna have a lot less uh issues really in his government if uh if wales is brought in line see the this issue well guy sucks <laughs> he's really annoying <laughs> it's always jacking up everybody's stees uh basically his argument there is look you've got all these lords in wales they're operating under a completely different set of laws than the ones that you operate under and there's opportunities for them for them to become you know, subordinate to take advantage of the crown, all of this stuff. Really what you need to go, what you need to do is go and bring the legal systems in these two countries onto the same playing ground. And this happens. There isn't like a big battle or anything like that. He basically just has to go in and legally 
change uh, the uh, the designation of of whales in the English legal code. So they're working under legal or under English laws as well. But it's not really worth talking about other than like this is one of the number one. It's one of the four countries that currently make up uh, uh, the United Kingdom. And number two, it's once again under Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> Uh, it's really just to show like how much of this goes wrong uh, under under Cromwell. What a butt. Yeah, and I think it, <laughs> I, I completely agree, but I think it mainly <laughs> speaks to an insecurity that comes from the whole break with the church, right? Like there's this crisis of legitimacy, I think, that happens within the monarchy and within the government of saying like, well if all of this stuff was based on religion and we make changes to the religion, where does that leave us politically? They seem very, mm. very conscious of that. Scotland had been a proudly distinct kingdom since essentially the Viking invasions um, around the turn of the millennium had been defeated in battle by William the Conqueror. Um, and the uh, King of Scotland was forced to basically surrender to uh to england and this is going to in turn be used as justification uh for england to continue meddling constantly throughout scotland's uh subsequent history there are several times where english monarchs got in and either backed alternate claimants to the throne to try and get a more favorable monarch in scotland uh, sometimes they just directly chose successors. Like the the English monarch was seen as a an authority on on succession, I suppose. Uh, and it really wouldn't be that uncommon for the two countries to just be at war. Uh, the biggest uh, example of that being the Wars of Independence, twelve ninety six to thirteen fifty seven. This is what where you get your Robert the Bruce, your William Wallace, all of that good stuff. Probably worth its own episode at some point. It's interesting stuff. We're not going to spend any time there today, though. Yeah, I'll just gloss over that for now. <laughs> and then you get to 1503, where James the uh, Sixth of Scotland becomes, uh, or sorry, uh, 1503, where James the Fourth of Scotland, my mistake, uh, marries Margaret Tudor. This is uh, Henry the Eighth's elder sister, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a bit of a concern at the time, uh, you know, a full century before. Uh, the unification of these two uh, countries, there was a bit of concern that it's like, well, you have a Scottish king marrying the daughter of an English king. Is there any chance that like down the road, some weird succession stuff happens and the king of Scotland becomes the king of England and basically everyone went, ah, don't worry about it. It's never going to happen. That'll never happen. <laughs> That's like, that was the entire justification of it. That'll be fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> don't just, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, and I mean, you know, granted at that point in time, Henry the seventh has two sons and like things look fine from a succession standpoint, it, but we also know how that's going to turn out. Oops. Oops. And then you have, you know, England from like a political standpoint rather than a religious standpoint. You know, it, we, we touched on a lot of this, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time going over it, but really by the time we get to... The, the era of the English Revolution, we're kind of at the end of like 150, well, not the end, but, you know, we've been through 150 years of massive instability with brief periods of calm here and there. 
you start with the War of the Roses, as I mentioned, beginning in the 1450s between York and Lancaster. The House of Tudor is basically created from the union of both under Henry VII. Uh, you have Henry VIII's fertility issues, all of his children lacking heirs. And then when you get to James VI being offered the throne on the death of, El of Elizabeth, you know, as I mentioned, he has a wife, he has children, he has several male children. He's overall well received, partially because of that exhaustion. You know, like we're done with all of these succession issues. We're done with all this war. We're done with all, all of this instability. And so you end up with this unity of the kingdoms, as we talked about in person, but not in fact. So this is the, the personal union era of, of the British monarchy. These monarchs are king or queen of Scotland and England, but those aren't one single crown. Something that I find fascinating about this whole era is that, like, it seems like there's only so much detritus that a political machine can build up before stuff starts kind of falling off, right? Like, it's it's like it's like a really old car. If you repair something when a car is two or three years old, no trouble. But like there's a certain point after, you know, 15, 20 years where it's limping along and it's like, do I even put the money into it? What's the next one to cost me? Like there's a there's a there's a point at which it becomes harder and harder to fix. And like the weight of all of these years of small decisions that you don't necessarily understand what the consequences are going to be in two, three, four centuries. There's a point where you just can't keep fixing all this stuff. You're bending it to a purpose that it was never intended for. And things just sort of start to break down a little. This brings us to Charles I. <laughs> oh, Chuck. <laughs> Been a while since we talked about him. You know, what's interesting about Charles is that he was actually, again, a uh, second son uh, of James VI uh, slash first. He had an older brother, uh, Henry, who would have been a Henry IX, um, who once again died as a teenager, age 18. Typhoid fever. We actually know what that one was. That was in 1612 that, uh, that Henry died. Uh, in 1613, Charles's older sister, uh, Elizabeth, married Frederick V, who was going to later be briefly king of Bohemia, pretty important guy on the continent, uh, also a key player in the, in the early Thirty Years' War. So for reference, Thirty Years' War that we talked about at the very beginning, that's 1618 to 1648. We are coming up on warfare on the continent over religious issues. And you have England over here kind of playing in its sandbox kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> where where is bohemia again bohemia that is part of the holy roman empire gotcha yeah james is still you know alive at this point these are his children that are making these moves he's married off his daughter to uh an important person in the holy roman empire that's you know generally fairly fractured territory when it comes to religion but like all of this is under the holy roman emperor who is habsburg who is catholic again there's been warfare with uh england and spain uh for quite a long time especially under uh, elizabeth where she's built up england's army or uh, navy quite substantially to face uh spain so there's some bad blood there 
James is also hoping to arrange a political marriage with Spain to avoid future warfare with Spain. He decides that he's going to marry Charles off to a Spanish princess. There's a bit of an issue there, though, which is that Spain is also Catholic. They're actually also Habsburgs. And James has uh, faced all these accusations over the years of being sympathetic to Catholics. Oh, boy. Here we go. So we're in a spot where it's like, okay, do we make a politically advantageous marriage based on like geopolitical stuff? You know, who are we going to go to war with? Or do we turn down this opportunity for a prolonged peace because of religious uh, appearances? It's not even an issue that, you know, James is about to, or rather Charles is about to convert to Catholicism. It's that there's an appearance of impropriety. There's an introduction of questions, right? Balancing a lot of plates all at once here. We really are. The wheels are falling off this metaphorical car. It turns out that this marriage never goes through. Uh, the king of Spain is not interested in marrying his daughter to a future English monarch. But it takes a while for that to actually manifest. There are several years of trying to negotiate this um, uh, th- this match. And throughout all of it, Parliament is really, really against it. Parliament as a... Uh, an organization in England is relatively powerful given the time, given that it's an elected body. England is a little bit special in this way. And this goes back to centuries upon centuries of English law. Uh, you can kind of point to the Magna Carta as being part of this, you know, bringing uh, monarchs under some sort of legal liability. I suppose. Uh, I think the Magna Carta gets overhyped in terms of its importance to English history, but like where it is specifically really important is obligations between the English monarch and English nobility. And because Parliament is almost exclusively made up uh, of people who are at least nobility, but definitely landed gentry, it does somewhat apply here. Mm hmm. Something that's become very popular in Parliament over the reign of James is Puritanism. It's that, like I said, kind of little bit upper class. Yeah, what's in the Bible and only what's in the Bible. Yeah, this very like academic understanding of uh, of religion. Um, it's 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 having a moment. And so Parliament is really upset with James, and there's not a lot they can do to express uh, displeasure, but there are some things, right? Like, there's certain things that Parliament is required for in England, and they are basically to make laws, which is normally rubber-stamped through, and raise taxes, which the king can't do on his own. And, like, again, those are normally things that are just sort of routine. They just kind of happen. They're day-to-day uh, parts of legislation. And James coming from Scotland where parliament is even more perfunctory. Like it's very, like it's assumed that whatever the King says is going to go in parliament. Wasn't expecting the level of pushback that he starts to get from parliament over this marriage issue. And they're just sort of, you know, dragging out processes, making it harder, not giving as much money as James was asking for things like that. Just, 
making life difficult because that was the only way they could express any disagreement. Charles, being relatively young through this process, basically takes the lesson that Parliament is obstructionist. They get in the way of the divine right of kings trying to do what it is the kings do best, which is govern the country. Oh boy. He didn't really see a reason that Parliament needed to be involved in his marriage arrangements, which, you know, I can kind of appreciate. Uh, but like the lesson there is the like, well, if I'm appointed by the will of God, then who are these guys to say otherwise? The negotiations fail in Spain and an arrangement is made actually with the king of France instead. So instead of marrying Habsburg, Charles ends up marrying uh, Henrietta Maria, who is a uh, bourbon. In the later stages of the, the Thirty Years' War, it's mainly going to be a conflict. Like th There is absolutely the religious aspect, but it also becomes about a war between Bourbons and Habsburgs. Uh, France ends up basically fighting on the Protestant side, even though they're Catholic, and the whole thing gets very messy. But they've basically swapped sides, and they've basically made Spain uh, an enemy for life because of all of this. Again, there's a lot of opposition because uh, because Henrietta Maria is Catholic, but Charles promises like publicly, like vows, that he's never going to relax Catholic prohibitions. But he kind of promised the opposite to Louis the Thirteenth of France in secret. Uh oh. Oops. If look, let's let's talk about Charles for a second. Charles is very confident in his own right to rule charles is big on making promises and then not breaking them like he's very very firm on on keeping his word he also has a really bad habit of making contradictory plans or contradictory promises which he seems to think will somehow work out for him but almost inevitably end up backfiring to his absolute bafflement he's completely surprised by it every single time and i don't understand why but i guess that's why we end up in this in the place that we're gonna end up <laughs> this doesn't sound like the brightest dude he's not look this is where we get this final ingredient right like yeah. things are bad under james but he at least knows how to negotiate these different parties to a point where the entire set of islands don't blow up charles you know, Charles also, to his detriment, as far as Parliament is concerned, supports a faction within the church known as the Arminian faction. Not something I was expecting to hear. Without getting too deep into it, basically, oh boy, I'm going to talk about Calvinism again. Um, Calvinism. Here we go. I have a friend who went to uh, school for divinity studies, and I I had a couple of, of podcasts years ago where... I got feedback that I had done a bad job of explaining Calvinism, but for completely opposite reasons. And uh, I, I was asking about asking him about it one time, and he said, "Yeah, that's that's just kind of how it goes. Um, everyone has such a different and like personal understanding of it that no matter what you say, you're probably going to get something wrong for somebody. And so um, I'm just not going to worry about it. I guess I, I'll do my <laughs> best, but uh, you know." Here we go. Yeah. Basically, Not a Calvinism expert here. Oh, no, 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 no. Far from it. Um, the, the disagreement between Arminianism and Calvinism in the Anglican Church specifically is that there is an understanding of predestination in 
the Calvinist tradition, which is basically counter to free will. That's probably an over uh, simplification of the matter, but basically there's a belief that you are either saved when you're born or you're not, and not a whole lot you can do in your life can change it. Arminianism is this movement within the church that says, yes, generally the foundation of theology in Anglicanism is Calvinism, but we kind of think that free will might exist. That's that's the, the root of it. Fair enough. Yeah. You'll find that these these like we talked about earlier, right? Sometimes these disagreements seem to be on very, very small, very specific points, but it's it's enough because in the eyes of people who are part of the reform tradition, the Calvinist tradition, just this denial of predestination is, you know, it, it, it smacks of papacy, you know, it's, mm. it's the kind of thing a Catholic would say. Charles wasn't Catholic, but he has a lot of things stacked up against him that aren't looking good. And then in 1625, James dies and Charles becomes Charles the first king of England and Scotland and Ireland, actually, while we're at it. But not Wales. Uh, Wales doesn't have a king. When, Wales is a principality under the organization of, of British politics, geography. I don't even know what to call that necessarily. That's why that's why the um, heir apparent becomes Prince of Wales. Uh, they technically rule over all of Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no king of Wales. Yeah. So it's, it's what's known as a principality. A principality is a body politic under which prince is the highest rank they attain. Interesting. Yeah. Charles becomes king and feels more inclined than ever to just go ahead and ignore whatever parliament said. But he needed parliament for very mundane things, which was no end of, of, of cause for like chafing for him he hated it so much but it's also so central to english politics that there's nothing you can do about it so you get stuff that starts happening between the two of them where they just can't find a way to work together and i'm talking about parliament in a very like general way where it's just like this amorphous body of course there's different parliaments and you know there are elections that are held to to elect members of parliament all of this stuff and it does change over but like as a body uh the rift between charles and parliament starts growing and growing so for example um there's a a raid in a a place called uh caddies in in spain where charles had this friend uh the duke of buckingham who Basically, the two of them cooked up this plot or this plan where they wanted to be publicly um, anti-Catholic, I guess. They wanted to show that they were loyal to England, that they had no Catholic or or pro-Catholic sentiments. And so they wanted to go to war with Spain to show this. But it costs a lot of money to go to war. So Charles goes to Parliament and says, listen, I... Don't want to get involved with with you know the new Thirty Years' War. It's not called that, but you know what I mean. I don't want to get involved in a land battle. That's really expensive. What I'd like to do instead is fund some ships and go raid Spain so that we can still fight on the Protestant side, show our support of France, um, but it's going to cost a lot less money. And Parliament felt kind of like he wasn't doing enough. He, they wanted to commit like actual troops on the ground in continental Europe. So they refused to fund the expansion of the Navy. 
but Charles was uninterested in going to war on the continent. So Buckingham and Charles cook up this plot where they're like, okay, tell you what, we'll use our own money to go on this raid on the Spanish city of Cadiz, which is like a port city. Um, and we're going to, you know, steal a bunch of Spanish gold and like, it'll be really cool and fun and an adventure, all of this stuff. Right. Oh boy. But they don't have a lot of money, like not like parliament level money. So they don't have as many ships as maybe if it was funded by the government. All that money that Henry VIII had made off of those sales of church lands, a lot of that went to the construction of the navy under Elizabeth and, and the wars that she fought under her rule. Like the, the monarchy is not particularly well off at this point. They're not destitute or anything, but they're not fund a war ourselves rich. The raid was a complete disaster. Like it went really no badly. Way. It was so surprised. It went really badly. Uh, a lot of people died. It was it was a it was egg on their face. Um, Buckingham looked can't like, believe it didn't work out for him. Buckingham looked like a complete idiot. So Parliament was like, we got to impeach this Buckingham guy. He basically, you know, because they can't impeach the king. So it's like, well, this guy basically went to war on our behalf. Um, and and damaged the reputation of England on the national stage. But, you know, Buckingham's one of Charles's favorites, so they kind of, like, he tells them not to impeach, and they're like, we're going to anyway, we have the right, we're parliament. Charles shows up, has two MPs arrested for a week, which oh is goodness. like, you don't do that. This is These are political prisoners now. Parliament throws a fit, and uh, Charles just dismisses Parliament, which he's allowed to do. He's the king. He's that's that's how it works. But like, there's no like it. Like, see how there's just like this really like quick like escalate, 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 and then shut the whole thing down. That's yeah. that's going to be the pattern. That's going to be it for the rest of this story, right? So Charles wants to raise some more money to like see what he can do to sort of rescue the situation. But again, he doesn't have the ability to raise taxes without Parliament. So he's comes up with this idea of a thing that's called a forced loan where everyone has to give some money to the king. And if they don't, they'll have to go to jail. And okay. <laughs> Parliament, uh -huh. Parliament goes, that's a tax. I mean, there is no parliament, but like everybody who would be in parliament, was it still in session? Everybody who would be ever elected to parliament, that class of society just goes like, that's, a, that's just what a tax is. You're just calling it something different. You can't do that. And so they're outraged. They're upset with the king. The king's going, I have divine right. I can do what I want. Clash, clash, clash. 1628, he has to call parliament again for you know legal reasons he has to get some laws passed and they immediately parliament i mean petitions the king to uh remove the forced loans they're like you can't do that it's not it's a tax it's completely illegal like cut it out basically right and charles goes okay like yeah i guess i'll remove it you know to work with them but he keeps collecting it and <laughs> Within a month, he just dismisses Parliament again. He oh, no. <laughs> he starts collecting customs duties directly to himself rather than to like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not it, he puts new customs duties in place without parliamentary assent. They're like, again, that is a tax. 
you can't tax people and call it something different, that's tax. Oh, Chuck. So in 1629, he calls Parliament again and he says, hi, I've, all, I've called you all here to approve the customs duties that I've already put in place. We're just going to like retroactively approve, approve it and everybody's going to be happy, right? No. Parliament is upset. They pass a resolution against Arminianism, saying that it is, uh, you know, a blight on society or whatever it is that they call it. They sure. pass a resolution uh, denouncing Catholicism. They pass a resolution expressly forbidding the collection of duties by the crown. That's only a parliament thing. So, like, they're doing everything but what Charles wants. Again, it's dissolved. Uh, Charles is furious. This time he arrests nine members of parliaments. And that is kind of the moment where like this whole thing turns into like a popular issue. Like everyday people start caring about this. This is no longer just like some royal nonsense. How how long, how much longer is Chuck going to have a head on his shoulders? Um, We're in 1629, right? Um, I think that's what you said last year. Yeah, we're looking at 19 years and counting. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're asking the question. I'm going to give you the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Dude doesn't seem very uh, savvy. This is what I'm saying, right? Like, there are so many opportunities along this way that he could have found something to work with, right? Like, there is a there is an art to statesmanship there is an art to ruling that is not just despotism there's a place for offering olive branches there are there's a place for white lies that all parties are willing to accept you know like that that is just that is just how um government works in this system right like there's a place where you know i i don't know charles agrees to denounce arminianism in exchange for the the customs duties that he wants to collect. And then yeah, everybody's... It, sound, it sounds like he's not willing to play the game. He just wants to play it his way and not really care about what anyone else wants to do. Yeah, and that's exactly the problem here, right? Like, he could have he made a concession and Parliament would have been gracious about it and he would have been gracious about it. And, like, yes, he would have been furious about it. And he could have complained to Buckingham about it, I guess. Um, <laughs> but... You know what I mean? Like, it's not, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work this stuff out. You gotta work it out. Um, so uh, where are we at? Parliament is currently dissolved. Charles decides at this point that he's going to basically try ruling without Parliament. And this is not like, it's not impossible. There's basically two things he needs to do to pull this off. Okay. Number one is to make peace. He cannot get involved with any wars. Wars are brutally expensive and he does not have the funds for it. Number two, he has to find ways to either live within the means that he currently has in terms of income or find ways outside of like legal ways outside of parliament to make money. And I mean, he is a wealthy man. There are ways to make money that are fine right they're completely i was going to say constitutional there is no constitution here but you get my drift yeah they're legal is what i'm trying to say and like 
Charles does the first one. He immediately makes peace with France and Spain. This is the last that England is going to be involved in anything remotely to do with uh, the Thirty Years' War. They're just going to stop being involved whatsoever. And the second one, he starts off okay, right? Like he starts working within his means. He starts looking at um, some arcane laws that have been in place since before Parliament was really a body and leveraging some of those. So, for example, you know, there's uh, the granting of monopolies, which is where you get stuff like the... Uh, the East India Company, I think, would be to this point in time. I'd have to double check that. But basically, you grant a company monopoly on selling a thing, like which is not monopoly the way we understand now. It's just like a royal license to do that thing. So you have somebody wealthy come to you. You're the king. You say, you know, that person says to you, I want to sell, oh, I don't know, cheese. And the king goes, great. You have to pay me a thousand pounds a year. And you can sell all the cheese that you want. And you do a little bit of math, say, yeah, that works out. I'll still make more money than that. It's worth it. King gets a thousand pounds a year. You get to sell your cheese. Everybody's happy. That is legal. It's also not enough. So Charles starts getting a little more creative. He starts looking at uh, some really old laws. For example, he finds one that's called uh, Distraint of Knighthood which is something I'd never heard of before. (laughs) What it means is that everybody who is knighted has a legal obligation to either attend a coronation or be forced to pay a fine. And not everyone who's knighted in the realm showed up at his coronation. So he starts going back through the guest list, finding anybody who's a knight who wasn't there and charging them, I believe it was 40 pounds, which is just annoying yeah that sounds real bothersome and like a pound is worth a lot more but like like lighten up man like calm down um he starts looking at something called ship money which is kind of an elizabethan holdover she was given uh, a license by parliament to basically raise money for the navy whenever it was needed and this is like a relic of those spanish wars uh at sea and he starts kind of collecting money from nobility calling it ship money and then not necessarily using it for the navy and he's kind of saying like well as long as i'm collecting it and calling it ship money it's fine and again everyone's going that's just a tax again charles like you're not (laughs) you're not getting it not very subtle here (laughs) everybody's seeing through it he thinks he's smooth whatever um and then you know there's there's some mechanisms via ireland just because of the unique um legal situation there uh he appoints another advisor a guy named the earl of strafford um uh, as as administrator in ireland for him and they start finding creative ways to tax people in ireland that again because it's ireland not england english parliament has no say whatsoever in good lovely love that for the irish people oh yeah it's uh it's how it always goes in 1633 Charles returns to Scotland for his Scottish coronation. Remember, we mentioned this earlier. And again, like the guy just. like He's a telephone pole. Like he's just he's so. So he he goes back and he's in Scotland, Scotland, where Presbyterianism is the, the main faith for most people. It's not the only faith there, but like 
it's got a lot of popularity. And the whole point of that is that it's separate from Anglicanism. It's very different. He goes and he's being corn he's being crowned, and he requests that the coronation be uh conducted under the Anglican rites for coronation. This is weird because like he should know, like he's from Scotland, like he was born in Scotland. Yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe not the best idea you've ever had. No. And like what's more, he was like like I understand he wasn't groomed to rule from birth, right? For for the first however many years of his life, he expected to be just a prince forever. Like he must like d- did no one sit him down and explain the importance of ceremony of symbol to, to to Charles, right? Like it's it's weird. It's so weird to me that he didn't consider this, but like all he cared about was what was most familiar and comfortable to him. And as the king of England and as the head of the Anglican Church, he asked for the Anglican rights despite being in Scotland, right? This causes a minor scandal. It's it's mainly within the nobility, right? But his response, Charles's response is, well, maybe the issue is Presbyterianism. Oh lord. And he decides to commission a new Scottish book of common prayer. Good. Which is the issue that got Edward VI into a lot of trouble with rebellions. So, but it should work for Charles, right? No problem. Obviously, he hasn't had any troubles yet. And who does he go to talk to about commissioning this book? Is it the elders, aka the most important people in Presbyterianism? No. He goes to the Scottish bishops, who are, of course, going to recommend rights that are much closer to Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. Because they are Episcopalian. That's the whole point. It's a completely different structure. This is no longer just like a scandal. This is seen as an attempt to enforce Anglicanism under a slightly different name in Scotland. And this results in widespread unrest. It results in riots. And it, res- it results in the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, so the Presbyterian Church, raising an army after formally condemning Charles for his actions. Oh, dang. So Charles is still king of Scotland. The (laughs) church, (laughs) the church of Scotland is rebelling against the king of Scotland. This is how big of a deal it is. Yeah. And again, all Charles had to say at any point along up until now is, you know, he's never going to admit that he's wrong. He's never going to admit error. All he had to do was like sit down with some important people and hash out a way that both parties could walk away from the table with honor intact and a Presbyterian Scotland. Instead, Charles took this rebellion as a rebellion against his own personal authority and a questioning of his divine right to rule. Now, he was still in a fight with Parliament. He didn't want to recall them to uh, raise money to raise an army. And so he personally raised an army of about 15,000 people with his own funds. This is almost entirely untrained recruits, so he could pay a whole lot less. They're generally poorly armed. He did hire some Dutch mercenaries from the continent who were at this point just, uh, you know, like two thirds of the way through the Thirty Years War and extremely uh, skilled, but also Catholic. Mm. I'm sure that'll I'm sure the optics there are good. Like, imagine if if newspapers were more of a thing in this era, like the headlines. <laughs> yeah, right. 
you know, breaking, Charles hires Catholic mercenaries to quash Scottish uprising. Like, it's just, it's so, it's, the optics are so bad. The man needs a PR team. It's not, like, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it drives me insane. It's, it's so, it's so wrongheaded that, like, he can't listen to literally anybody in any of this. No one can tell him he's wrong. And, like, this is what happens when you can't take constructive criticism. Everything falls apart. It's really, really bad. It's really hard to rule on your own advice alone forever and have it go well. It doesn't work. Anyway, this first clash with the General Assembly uh, in 1638 to 1639 doesn't really come to anything. There's no like huge battles. There's some skirmishes, but like we're talking about tens of thousands on each side and like maybe a couple hundred casualties total in the entire war. But this is what's known as the First Bishop's War. Basically, the English troops and the mercenaries were essentially unwilling to engage the much better trained, much better armed Scottish troops because they were afraid they were going to lose. Charles was afraid he was going to lose as well. And he was afraid that losing would make him look weak. Instead, he just... <laughs> just like, okay, what's your other option, bud? Not fight at all and look even weaker when he surrendered. Right? That's what I'm saying. Like... <laughs> And essentially, he, he, he ran out of money, basically. There's no huge pitched battles. There's nothing like that. Again, there are skirmishes. It's not as though they just like lined up at each other and went, no, I don't think so. Like Things happened, but like it was mostly maneuvering. And what ends up happening is, you know, they... <laughs> there's, there's, there's an end to the conflict. Everyone knows there's going to be a second one, right? It legitimizes the causes of the General Assembly. Um, They're known as Covenanters, is the the group name that we're going to use for this kind of wide umbrella. Um, But basically the Scottish General Assembly. It gives them more legitimacy, right? Like, clearly clearly they're powerful if the king is this afraid of them. It gives them more time to prepare, which means gather funds. And when they were successful in the first one, people tend to be fine giving funds to a successful army. It gives them more time to train and it gives them like a moral authority, right? They're defending their faith against the king and they won. Oh, goodness. Charles, on the other hand, has to go back to parliament to call to call for more funding for more troops. And so they hold elections. uh, They bring parliament together. Charles goes, please, may I have some money for my wars? And Parliament says, first off, uh, we're going to spend three weeks uh, addressing all of our grievances that we have with you since you haven't called us in so long. And they rag on the ship money thing. They rag on all of the weird roundabout laws that the king has called. They rag on the fact that the king hasn't called them in, in so long. It's been like 11 years. And the king takes this for like three weeks and just dissolves them again. (laughs) without any of his funding (laughs) like oh good why why call them he knew this was going to happen this this resistance is largely offered by a politician named john pym he's clearly not the only one but he's sort of the face of this resistance to the king you could be considered like the opposition in this 
uh, in this dynamic, right? And he is a an ardent uh, Puritan, and he sees what the king is doing as an affront to his own faith and to the spiritual health of the realm. He is a crusader. He believes in himself deeply, and he continues to win, right? Like he's winning. <laughs> The king has to go back for a second war in 1640. Now he's basically completely out of money. Again, English side is poorly equipped, poorly trained. They, on their way north to Scotland, they're raiding English villages. They're raiding English citizens for supplies. That, that's not good. So... There's confusion. There's resentment. This is not a way to win hearts and minds by the king. <laughs> like, I don't know. If you're in some random northern English village and the English army comes tramping through and uh, steals all your food and probably your pitchfork because they're short on weapons. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if the Scots invaded, it wouldn't be so bad. They at least have their stuff together. <sighs> Oh, Chuck. This is, it's all so avoidable. It's all so avoidable. There's a second war, 1640. There is a... There, like, morale on the English side collapses so fast because the Scottish army is so much better this time. And there is a single battle. It's called the Battle of Newburn. The Royalist forces, they're called, they're called Roundheads for some reason. The, the Royalists are deleted. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they're, they're just completely wiped off. The, the, the army is gone. Um, it's, it's, it's a decisive defeat. And Charles is again forced to make peace. But this time, the Scottish troops are occupying a portion of northern England. They've invaded. The, the, the battle took place on English territory. So... The terms of this with the General Assembly are that as King of England, they're going to continue to hold a portion of his territory until the terms are, 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 are satisfied. And as King of Scotland, as the winning, as the winning king against himself, <laughs> he's obligated to pay all of the back pay for the Scottish armies who defeated him and an ongoing fee per day until he pays the entire lump sum and then the Scottish troops will leave. So the longer he takes to pay, the more he's going to have to pay and they will sit there until they get paid all from Charles. He ends up paying a lot of money to get those troops out of Northern England. Nothing like invading yourself. That's, what happens here because of the weird political system that's going on right now? Because it's not the government of Scotland that does it. It's the it's the it's the Church of Scotland. And part of the terms of the, of the surrender are to legitimize the invasion as something done by the government of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Charles uh, looks stupid. A little bit. He looks weak. And he's backed into a corner. Like, this is, this is the worst possible outcome. He's got nothing left. He can't pay the terms himself. So what does he need to do? Oh, boy. Hey, Parliament. You want to come yell at me for a bit again? How y'all been? That three-week one in between the two bishops' wars, that's known as the short Parliament. This, mm -hmm. one, this one is known as the long Parliament. Oh, yeah. I wonder why. Well, they open up 
uh, the very first thing that they want to pass is a new law requiring parliament to meet every three years, whether or not called by the king. We're not going to have another 11-year drought. We are going to pass some laws closing a bunch of the loopholes allowing taxes without parliament so that Charles can't get away with this again. We are going to give parliament control over appointing some of, some of the king's ministers rather than just letting him give it to his best friends. And we are going to forbid the king from dissolving parliament without parliament's own consent. Ah, that's probably a good idea. So all of this is in place and Charles has to agree because he's not going to get funding if he doesn't. Like they've got him over a barrel. This significantly strengthens parliament it significantly weakens charles and he's mad about it you know he's so mad about it but he's got no choice so charles agrees to all this stuff and then the next thing the parliament does they they help him clear up the scottish thing but they're a much stronger parliament now right like they can't be dissolved they start their own agenda of continuing to weaken charles they are trying to punish him like, they're upset with him. They don't like him. They don't like what he's been up to. They suspect he's Catholic. They are upset that he just attacked Scotland, which they see as a model to follow religiously. This is now Parliament against the king, right? So the next thing that they're going to do is go after some of his closest advisors. And the main scandal that comes out of this is they're going to take a shot at... Uh, the Earl of Strafford. I don't know if you remember that name. This is the guy yeah, that sounds familiar. This is the guy that was sent to Ireland to administrate uh, over the Kingdom of Ireland yes. to kind of milk some of that tax money out of there. You'll notice that the Irish have not been mentioned in a while, including in a whole stretch of time where uh, Charles was trying to figure out how to wage a war against Scotland. Mm -hmm. This was discussed. There was impossibly the only moment of clear thinking of Charles's life. <laughs> there was a concern that if he brought in Irish troops to fight against Scotland, that that would be seen as a Catholic invasion of Scotland, which is like yeah. the one thing he was trying to avoid optically. Right. And so I don't know if this is like, here's the thing. I, I, I'm, this didn't help him because he didn't win the war, but I'm not sure if winning the war with Catholic troops would have been any better for him. Yeah. Just a different bucket of problems. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have helped his perception problems with parliament. I can tell you that much. And there's, there was also a concern that like, you know, especially in this era, there's something of a, like, I don't know. It's sort of like, hmm. If you just have Ireland and Scotland in a room together, they're not going to be too friendly. But if you have Ireland and Scotland in a room with England, they're best friends and they're enemies with the English, right? Yeah. Like there's that dynamic going on. So it's sort of like, okay, well, if we even bring Irish troops over, are they even going to help us fight the Scots? Are they going to defect and turn against us? We don't know. Messy, messy, messy. And like, I don't know. Every once in a while I get to a, a spot like this and I almost have a little bit of sympathy for Charles where it's kind of like, well, there really was no good move. And then I remember that like, well, that's because he missed yeah. <laughs> eight other good moves previously. Yeah. And like, no, he's stuck now. But like the, he, he got himself into this own corner. 
or into this corner himself. Yeah, you must reap what you have sown. Oh, 100%. So <clears throat> they're going after Strafford, and Parliament wants to impeach the guy on sort of uh, vague treason charges, I guess. Okay. They're hoping to get him in there and they're hoping basically that like it'll go smoothly and they'll they'll push this thing through and all of Parliament's going to uh, go along with it. But it turns out that Strafford is actually like a really smart, really charming guy. The only evidence they initially had against him was some testimony from this one other noble that actually once he saw how well Strafford was uh, performing on the stand, sort of remembered that actually that was a lie. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> that, that maybe he didn't feel like telling in front of Parliament after all. And they started seeing their whole impeachment case against Strafford start to fall apart. Now, this is where you start to see some of the seams in Parliament, because not all of Parliament is like explicitly against the king. Obviously, like some of them are in strong support of the king. Uh, a lot of them understand that the legitimacy of parliament does at least ultimately flow from the legitimacy of the king. Like there is some level of solidarity there from some members. Not everyone is part of this. I don't want to call it like a Puritan conspiracy, but like they're not part of that faction, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of MPs when you get them in front of an impeachment hearing, they might be okay with, for example, removing Strafford from certain appointments, you know, making him no longer a minister, but like they don't hate the guy necessarily. And then you have other factions that are kind of like, we would like to execute Strafford. Okay. <laughs> uh, we really want to push a message of the strength of parliament, the legitimacy of parliament. We want to show the king, like really rub the king's nose in it, right? And again, it's been decades of animosity with the king. You can kind of understand where that might be coming from. Yes. So when the impeachment is what's on the table, it's a little bit more like, oh, it's kind of split. It's or it's it's going a little more in um Puritan favor. But when the impeachment looks like it's not going to go ahead, they decide to withdraw it and switch to a mechanism called a bill of attainder. Uh, I know this is all really arcane stuff, but like the difference between the two is that Parliament can impeach on their own without the king. A bill of okay. attainder, a bill of attainder requires the king's consent. So it's going to be easier to pass through parliament but then the king's gonna have to sign off on it at the end and a bill of attainder is a thing that no longer exists in most systems uh it's bad basically instead of a trial um parliament just votes yes or no on your guilt based on nothing based on however that's, a, that's they bad feel. yeah it's bad they push through a bill of attainder against strafford and it passes what is, what they kind of struggle with a little bit more is the consequences of that bill. But as Parliament radicalizes, more people start abstaining from things and abstentions tend to lead to like a more radicalized Parliament. It's like a feedback loop, a feedback yeah. loop. Um, and where we get to is a place that Parliament has basically voted to execute Strafford, but the king needs to sign off on it. There, We've been talking a lot about sort of just the top mechanisms of government. And we're going to get a little bit more in part two into like the 
popular faces of the revolution. Um, but there is a lot of support for Parliament in all of this. Charles has been successfully spun. Uh, spun would imply that it's not true, but the popular <laughs> the popular conception of Charles is as a tyrant at this point. Yeah. So the worry with this bill on his desk by Charles is, does he save his friend and risk popular uprising, which would in this case probably be led by parliament? Or does he kill his friend with the bill and hope that that calms everybody down, I guess? Yeah, buys him some favor. Strafford, man, other than the stuff... He gets up to a lot of bad stuff in, in Ireland. I'm spinning him very favorably in this portion of the story. But in what sounds like a completely made up self, uh, act of self-sacrifice, Strafford writes to the king and requests that he sign the execution order huh? to try and huh. like alleviate the guilt of the whole thing. Sure. It's okay, man. Just sign it. It's for the best. And so the king does and strafford is executed may 10th 1641 now we have precedent for executing people who suck we do have execution precedent but we also have further proof that the king will bow to whatever parliament tells him to do because he's over a barrel mm -hmm. back over in ireland all those catholic irish lords go wow the king the king's bad he's not he can't do anything <laughs> this guy sucks he's, he's bad he's bad at being a king uh let's take our opportunity i guess and a an uprising you know uprising is kind of a i, I think rebellion is maybe a better word um because it's not like a popular uprising it's a it's a from the top led by catholic lords rebellion goes into place strafford had been bad they were worried that whoever comes next appointed by this apparently radicalized puritan english parliament is going to be even worse yeah plus we've got instability in the wake of all of this stuff so it's kind of like well this is our best chance and a large faction led by a guy named uh fellow o'neill uh, quickly takes out the castle at Dublin. They hit in Ulster. They start hitting all the major English-ruled Protestant areas. I'm not sure if you remember this from when we did our episode on Ireland, but a lot of English lords are in the north and in the east in sort of a yeah. band known as the Pale. That's yep. where they're going to head. Because they're all concentrated, they're easier to contain. And it pretty quickly devolves into essentially an ethnic and religious conflict um conflict might be uh mm, it might imply more of a two sides thing it was there was a lot of slaughtering comes out of all of this of mm. english of scottish of Catholic, of uh protestant people so um both parliament and charles want to do something about this really quickly but neither side wants to sign all of the stuff needed to raise armies for the other. Charles doesn't want a parliament-controlled army under the guise of putting down Irish up uprisings because he's worried it'll be used against him. Parliament doesn't want Charles to have a big army because that's what they've been avoiding giving him for decades. And so they kind of don't do anything about it for a while. They're paralyzed. 
And that just further makes Charles look weaker because he can't control a popular uprising in his own territory. I didn't know he could look much weaker, but here we are. It's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely remarkable. Parliament is emboldened. They passed something called the Grand Remonstrance in Parliament, okay. which is a list of their grievances with Charles. All the things, Very fancy term. All the things that he's done wrong, which means that he has to sign it. <laughs> and he's like, no, absolutely not. But like, we're continuing to like further polarize Parliament, right? And he gets like he's had enough by 1642 he's completely done january 4th he uh sets up a plot to go in and attempt to arrest five of the worst mps including john pym for treason and so he's going to meet them in parliament right have them arrested in parliament so it's done in front of everybody problem is the word gets out and those five mps don't show up that day they had a cold a little tickle on their throat there's a pretty clear law that the king is not allowed to enter parliament. That is a law that exists to this day, actually. Really? Uh, they're not allowed into the House of Commons. Yeah. There's a very specific situation uh, for a throne speech. Um, and the way that it exists now, and this is, uh, it's actually a thing in Canada as well for for the governor general, who's the political representative of the the monarch uh in or order to deliver the throne speech they have to knock on the door and be and have the door closed in their face like refused uh and then try it again and then they get to go in as a symbolic representation of the fact that they're only there by assent of the members of parliament they're only by there by assent of parliament itself they're not allowed to assert their own authority to enter that chamber sure Charles shows up with an army. <laughs> Bad look. Worse look when you show up and look incompetent because none of the yeah, people you no want. no one's there. <laughs> so once again, just looks the stupidest. Like, I don't like Charles. I know. I, I hope that's coming through appropriately. No, I think you've made your point. <laughs> uh, Parliament is now more defensive than ever because Charles is breaking some of the oldest laws in the book. Like, he clearly does not care about this. And this is the point at which negotiations completely, completely collapse. There's no date where war is declared between Parliament and the king. But after this event, like, it's clear that the only way this is being solved is with armies. Charles heads north where his support is greater. Generally speaking, you're looking at kind of like higher Parliament support in the south and in urban centers and higher royal support in the north and in the, the countryside kind of thing. But you also have like lords who are still faithful to the monarchy, right? And so when Charles heads north, some of them choose to leave parliament and go with him. Oh, that but seems remember, unwise. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Parliament doesn't get dissolved right yeah, they're not there to vote on on behalf of chuck so parliament becomes even more anti-royalist oh boy so look now is the war part i it's it's endlessly fascinating to me it's not necessarily like mechanically the most interesting thing unless specifically military history is your thing but really the, the main thing you want to know is that both sides like this is still an era where armies are commanded by lords by like nobility mm -hmm. and 
early on, look, this is this is people that are in rebellion against the monarch. And as bad as Charles is, there's something like primal about that, right? Like it's so fundamental to the society that people have a hard time conceptualizing what the country would look like without the king, like what regicide would mean for society, what, you know, like this is a, a person who's not only the king and, and has divine right to rule, but is also the head of the church. Like he has about as much built in like taboo against opposition as somebody can get. What year is it right now? 1642. Has the French Revolution happened yet? No, we are over a century away. Yeah, I thought so. The thinkers of the French Revolution are going to be inspired by people who uh, lived through, opined about, wrote about, reflected on the English Revolution. There is no Rousseau without, uh, uh, you know, Hobbes, right? Like, that's just kind of how the enlightenment era is going to go like this yeah. this conflict is where what does society look like without a king begins and to be to be clear like parliament at this point isn't talking about the abolition of the monarchy they're talking about uh abolishing this monarch yeah, just just and monarch <laughs> he does have a son charles ii like there's there's we have a path forward there's a big battle the first battle is is called the Battle of Edge Hill, 23rd October, 1642. It's relatively inconclusive. Like, it's just as close to a starting date, I guess, as you're going to get. And early, the war goes really well for the royalists for the reason I just outlined, right? Like, there's all these people who do support him now that kind of the rubber hits the road. But um, the tide kind of turns by the time we get to mid-1644. There's a big battle uh, known as the Battle of Marston Moor. Uh, July 2nd, 1644. And the parliamentary troops have been implementing some strategies from the continent from nearly 30 years of war. They've brought over some tacticians who've explained some things about how warfare has advanced in the last little while. Because when everybody's at peace, tactics tend to stay about the same. And when everybody's at war, they develop really quickly, right? Yeah, necessity breeds invention, et cetera, et cetera. And Marston Moor is a standout event in the life of one of the English commanders, uh, a guy named Oliver Cromwell. I can't tell you how much I wish I could say right now that he was a, def a descendant of Thomas Cromwell, the guy who <laughs> sucked in that first beginning section yeah, yeah. so hard. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot say that. I can say that uh, he was related his uh great grandfather married thomas cromwell's sister i believe it is so he's not okay. a direct descendant but like there's there's some shared heritage there and like the the family was close enough at that point in time that when thomas cromwell got really really rich off of the whole break up all the monasteries things the nepotism kind of overfloweth at that point right and yeah. uh oliver's branch became more wealthy because of that it's really kind of the only situation where like trickle down economics is really really reliable just like blatant royalist nepotism yeah i was gonna say uh <laughs> um sure <laughs> it's it's you know appointments got 
technically correct. <laughs> Appointments get very, very free at that point. Um, so anyway, Cromwell kind of he, he's he's not a you know he's serving under the uh, the main commander, a guy named Sir Thomas Fairfax. But his his uh, conduct at Marston Moor, um, leading cavalry, kind of put him on the map as a as a commander. 1645, uh, Parliament decides that there's basically too many issues with the army being led by lords who don't know what they're doing. And they reorganize the whole army. Um, basically, all of the members of Parliament are forced to uh, give up their command and they change to a command based on merit model. This is known as the New Model Army. And really, the only two. Uh, MPs who aren't expunged from the army under this. Uh, it's called the self-denying ordinance. The only two who remain are Fairfax and Cromwell because of their performance so far. Summer of 1645, a couple, couple more big decisive battles for Parliament. And by the spring of 1646, Charles basically, he doesn't have a, a huge army behind him anymore. He's worried about the way things are going. And he basically decides to flee anything even remotely close to the front, heads north. And he, he tries to hide with the Scottish army, who he basically just assumes is going to be fine with that because he's the king of Scotland. I guess forgetting the whole Bishop's War thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> they arrest him <laughs> and uh through a series of moves hand the king over to parliament as a prisoner oops and that's the end of the first english civil war any royalist leaders all the ones who fled north to serve with the king any who still are serving uh, or who are still alive are forced to take an oath to parliament not to the king that they'll never defy parliament militarily again which is going to be a huge problem in 1647 when fighting starts up again oops the king is considered dangerous even as a prisoner because he's the king and he keeps trying to negotiate support with various parties sometimes mm -hmm. contradictory parties who hate each other all of his plans are really bad <laughs> it's 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 a mess but what was not necessarily suspected is that this new model army being like somewhat distinct from parliament is also becoming a little bit of a threat to parliament's power. There may be a little oh, bit really? too powerful and parliament starts squaring up for the next conflict more against the army than anything, right? Like more against Cromwell than it is sort of kind of expected to be the next big battle, but they do start getting ready. Charles manages to negotiate support that's cobbled together from like a few different sources. So there are factions within the Scottish army, which he manages to only after promising church reform in England to a Presbyterian model, he gets support from Scotland. He manages to uh, get support from factions within the army separate from parliament who are royalists who are depending on him to defend anglicanism oh you know, good episcopalianism his his usual wheeling and dealing that doesn't work out he's kind of like a poor man's vlad tepish where he's trying to play mm -hmm. these people against each other but doesn't have any idea on how it's going to work out mm -hmm. i would tend to agree um 
Yeah. So there's other uprisings in support of Charles throughout England. Uh, Wales comes out big for the king, which is interesting. That's curious. And fighting starts up again, mostly with like the king's still a prisoner through most of this. Uh, But like they're not going to like what what are they going to do? Like execute the king just because he's like they, they don't they still don't really know what to do with the king. Right. Um, but again, we continue going through this radicalization process. Seems to be going, the war seems to be going the war- royalist way. And the more it goes in royalist favor, the more parliament is worried about Charles and the more they're willing to do something drastic about Charles. There's a big battle, uh, Battle of Preston, August 1648. It runs for three days. And once again, Cromwell manages to pull out a parliamentary victory over the Scottish army. It's a big thing, massively uh, raises his reputation, and it's a functional end to the Second Civil War. With the defeat of that Scottish army, there isn't like a big enough force that can be brought to bear against the English army, and like that's it. That's the end of the war. And I mean, I think Charles goes back at this point to plotting like how do i how do i get out of it this time who's going to support me the next time but parliament is feeling pretty bold they've just won a second war and all of those royalists who were fighting with charles the second time around a lot of them had explicitly promised oaths to parliament not to do that Mm. which is an open and shut case of treason oops there's a lot of oops in this episode people just not making the greatest choices no so parliament just kind of executes any of them that made that oath and fought for charles Mm -hmm. and then it's kind of like well what do we do with charles they can't trust him but he's the source of legitimacy he is the core of english rule he's the core of english society he's the core of english religion and it's kind of like well what now and slowly this sentiment that like charles just has to go builds within parliament and it's not a majority, but it's large. And so the army also starts believing that Charles has to go. And they say to the faction within parliament that, well, we can help you with that if you want. And the radical popular, the radical uh, faction says, sure. And this leads to what's known as Pride's Purge in December of 1648, uh, named after Thomas Pride. He's the guy who, who led the, the, the action from within the military. He's a commander. They go ahead and they arrest 45 MPs on pretty shaky grounds, but like on the authority of parliament, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And then they put together a list of who's allowed into parliament and who's not. And there's 146 other MPs who aren't arrested, but they're just, you know, not allowed to vote that day, <laughs> physically barred from entering. Yeah. That leaves us with only 75 of the most loyal MPs in what's known as the rump parliament, which just means like a leftover. And they order a trial for Charles on charges of treason. Uh, Fairfax, you know, head of the army, decides to resign. He was a constitutional monarchist. As much as he disagreed with what Charles was doing, he couldn't really bring himself to be part of regicide. Yeah. (laughs) This led Cromwell to become head of the army 75 mps they vote they find charles guilty of high treason uh on charges of being a tyrant a traitor a murderer and a public enemy and on january 30th 1649 
in public, uh, Charles is beheaded. Dang, what a way to go. I can't think of a better place to break this up. Like, this is the place to stop, right? Yeah, for sure. It's got to be. There's nothing else. So let that one marinate for a while. When we come back, um, we're going to figure out what a kingdom does without a king. And uh, yeah, that's that's the next step. Next time on HI 101, we'll discover that all the different groups who agreed that Charles simply had to go are shocked to realize that they disagree on what should happen after he's gone. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that the East India Company was likely incorporated as part of Charles's spree of granting commercial monopolies, but it was actually his father, James I, that granted them their license. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.